and welcome back to the fourth and final season of Roycast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Gabby. Hey, Gabby. Hey, Brendan. Hey, everybody. And our guest today is a freelance writer for The Baffler, New Republic, Wired, and elsewhere. It's John Semley. Hey, John. Thank you. Joining you from elsewhere. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's where we're all permanently stationed in the podcasting <laughs> void. Exactly. Uh, today's episode, uh, season four, episode two, rehearsal. As usual, we will do a quick plot summary of the episode and then start diving into the things that interested us most. So in this episode, at an upstate retreat to build their strategy for the new PGN, Shiv learns that Tom has already met with and conflicted out several of the top divorce attorneys in New York acting on advice from Logan. Stung, she places a call to the junior Sandy Furness and plots to get back at Logan by joining with her and Stewie's coalition to withhold board approval of the Gojo deal in a nominal effort to boost the final number. Back in the city for Connor's rehearsal dinner where Willa is getting cold feet, Kendall receives a call from Matson, warning them that he will walk if the board plays hardball. And seeing a chance to provoke Logan further, he allies himself with Shiv. Meanwhile, Logan delegates to Tom, who in turn delegates to Greg the task of denying Carrie her aspirations to be on ATN, and gives a rousing speech to the ATN workforce. Learning of the siblings' alliance with Sandy and Stewie, Logan attempts to placate them in a rendezvous at a karaoke bar, but sees the futility of his efforts and leaves, calling off tomorrow's board meeting in favor of a direct parlay with Matson. Back at Logan's penthouse, Roman arrives to express his misgivings to Logan, who asks him to join the new ATN. So as you've heard, I mean, there's a lot kind of packed in there, um, and the season is starting to reveal its shape to us a little bit. And as we enter this final stretch of episodes and we start looking for clues about what the direction of the season's going to be, the show that I keep thinking of is The Sopranos, which is fitting because back all the way on the first episode of Roycast, we talked so much about that show, uh, trying to figure out what the conceit of succession was. And The Sopranos engaged with the idea of, you know, talked about therapy a lot, and the idea that therapy could help its characters, could help Tony understand their situation and the ways in which they were trapped by their lifestyle, but it couldn't do the work of changing their lives for them. And its final season, in many ways, was about the idea of regressing. It was Chris relapsing on drugs and alcohol, Tony with gambling and his affairs with women, Phil's rejection of the truce with New Jersey. And Succession, I think, is winding its way towards something similar. And although he doesn't have the same kind of old-school Dr. Krakauer moralizing perspective as David Chase, who really seemed to want to alienate the viewer in that final season, Armstrong has said that while circumstances may change, people's essential natures don't. And I think what this episode and what this season is about so far in a big way is retrenchment and not growth. And uh, the impetus for a lot of the episode's action is that first phone call uh, that Shiv gets with her, her lawyer talking about the divorce lawyers, the idea that uh, several of the top lawyers had been conflicted out, and that Tom had done this on advice from Logan. And that's what motivates her to call Sandy and initiate this whole plot where the siblings are going to screw up the Gojo deal somehow. So there's muddled motivations in there. Uh, but as we talked about last week, there's a lot of stuff with Shiv specifically about not just wanting to get back at Logan, but also really needing 
Waystar in a real way, even if it's one that's like kind of subconscious to her that she doesn't really recognize. Um, and to, to use that power for herself to kind of suppress the guilt that she feels in so many areas of her life. Um, how's this sounding to you, Gabby? I mean, is this, is this lining up with your thoughts on the season? Yeah, I mean, as I'm watching this season, it feels like a different experience entirely from the previous three because I know it's the last one, right? Like, I never watched um, any succession sort of thinking what's going to happen at the end of this because I thought, uh, you know, predictions are kind of foolhardy with this show. And also just because I just wasn't thinking about the end, right? Um, I was convinced there'd be a fifth season, but, you know, we've been talking about this idea of the, the closed, loose, closed loop system since it was introduced um, in season one in a somewhat comical context, but we've, you know, talked about it as, um, you know, sort of a, a good way to, to, to contextualize the show overall. Um, but, you know, the story kept going. Individual characters would have their, you know, their rise and their fall. Um, we would talk about it every week. And, and we weren't really thinking about the end that much. Um, so now that it's looming, I think that metaphor is resurfacing as we would have expected if we kind of took that to a logical end. Um, so, so even if all of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, all the regression and the retrenchment, it's still very sad to see everyone kind of hurtling towards some sort of descent or madness, which seems to me what is happening here. Um, uh, you look at Kendall, even if he's not at the very worst that we've ever seen him, he is in a familiar place that's not so great. He's lost in some some degree of mania coming up with, you know, these very like self-indulgent business ideas and all of this is running alongside what seems to animate him the most, which is, you know, trying to screw over his dad. Um, and even if his demeanor is, is you know, a little more stable, um, there's very little self-reflection. He's acting on impulse. Um, you can see it, especially in the final scene that we'll talk about. He's sober as far as we know, but his sobriety is always a tenuous thing. And, and, and that could um, completely erupt at any moment in a terrible way um we're not really seeing him with his kids and uh he's deriving way too much satisfaction from being cruel so yeah it's all a little up in the air for ken but he's not clear-headed and he's therefore very vulnerable not that he's ever particularly clear-headed but you know we saw um you know we saw something different at the end of all the bells say after his confession we've seen you know moments where ken seems really um, you know, sober and not in the <laughs> substance sense, but just clear, clear of clear mind. But it's always been very fractured, and it seems to be um, to be getting worse here. And then with Shiv, it's you know it's sort of already started, but I would expect ongoing major regressions from her. She loses Tom, you know, the only source of unconditional love in her life, or so she thought. You know, her anger is simmering, and and she's beginning to come undone we 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 saw it here with logan we saw it with tom in episode one and i think it's just a matter of time until she completely snaps um roman i, I don't see him at his worst per se he actually seems to be the only one um who is uh, you know somewhat clear-headed on both the business and the personal but um the family is reaching a point of no return in its conflict and and roman knows that and 
definitely is trying to um you know pretend it's not happening as as he tends to do when it comes to family conflict because he's desperate to be in everyone's good graces i mean enough to minimize and justify the physical abuse he experienced as a child um, when it comes up in this episode uh, his siblings seem genuinely frustrated that he broke the no contact rule with his father and, um, you know, with all these conflicting loyalties and his inability to sort of commit, it feels like he could really fall apart catastrophically to Connor. Clearly something very dark going on here that we haven't really seen before. And even with Tom and Greg, Tom with the shady move with the lawyers and their grimy, stupid work at ATN, it's just descent all the way down. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, it's... It's logical, but it is uh, it is hard to watch, and and you feel the end is is <laughs> is very very near. Yeah, I'm wondering how this plays for. Well, I mean, we we know because we we feel for these characters, right? But you know, it's I think about the, the that section of the fandom who you know are always very earnestly talking about how you know the kids need to do this and this, and you know it'd be so great if they could help each other heal and things like that, and <laughs> you know it's just not in the cards, right? It's um, not the and show. I, that's not the show. And John, I wanted to bring you in here because uh, when uh, we started talking about this, you mentioned, um, I'm very curious how this episode in particular played for you and how this season is playing for you so far, even at this early stage, because you talked about, you know, maybe feeling a little bit of frustration with, you know, the drama on the show running its course a little bit, which is certainly something that I think um, started to crop up, a, a critique that started to crop up a lot in the last season of the show. And, you know, this side, we're, we're constantly talking, obviously, about this idea of circularity, but there is, I suppose, a point of view from which, you know, perhaps that's justifying something that's lacking in the writing. I'm wondering if that's still the way you feel at this point, uh, or, or, or does this episode read a little bit differently to you? Well, having thought through it a bit, I mean, I feel like I had the exact same critique at the beginning of the last season, which is that we're just kind of going in circles, the closed loop, as you say. But, you know, the difference with that closed loop structure it's like the, uh, I'm trying to think of a more elegant reference than Run, Lola, Run. But let's use Run, Lola, Run, uh, where you start back at the beginning, but the characters are different, right? So even though we start, especially in this season, with the basic predicament of season one, which is that Logan's death seems imminent and the struggle for succession is once again nigh, uh, we know so much more about these characters and their behaviors have changed and they live in our mind in a different way. So I feel like that is what's giving texture to the show. You know, the, these kind of endless scenes of people uh, batting numbers back and forth, I do find a little tedious at a point. Uh, but that said, the scenes where it's the repartee of the kids or the kids with their dad uh, at a karaoke bar zinging one another, uh, trying to get under each other's skins, relating to each other in that way that's sort of perversely loving within the context of the Roy family. That is the stuff that I enjoy, which is the stuff that tends to kind of register for me as more comedic than dramatic. So, yeah, that said, I do feel like we're kind of uh, stuck in this this sort of uh, holding pattern where we're waiting for the season to take off. But I think there are enough kind of satisfying things, you know, again, especially the the writing and the performances that are going to keep me watching. You know, at the end of the day, if it was like these three kids in a Sartre and no exit every week for an hour, I would probably tune in. Right, which has to be probably part of the reason why the show is ending, right? I mean, this was Jesse Armstrong's big fear. And, and I mean, it, it completely changes, I think, the tone of this season because you're right like what how long could they have just 
been, you know, attempting another acquisition of Pierce or, you know, getting in cahoots with Stewie and Sandy. I, I mean, I, I, I do think there was juice for five seasons, but it's a very, very fair critique. Um, and, and I think uh, season episode three is when we're really going to start to see the threads um, come undone. Yeah, and I think that sense of finality, Gabby, that you mentioned, you know, it cuts both ways, right? On the one hand, uh, anytime it feels like things are a little bit inert or the table is not being set satisfyingly enough, it feels like it's a, a waste. Uh, but at the same time, that gives more opportunity for us to be surprised. I mean, the way that the third season kind of zagged into being this kind of sinister thing where they're picking a president instead of just running a media empire – I really liked that. I really liked what yeah. they did with Tom. So, uh, you know, I, I think there are still – God, I'm mixing metaphors They like plant crazy. so many seeds that can – you know, we talk about this a lot, that, that either disappear and it doesn't matter that we ever never hear from them again or it could turn into something incredibly consequential, which is, you know, part of the brilliance of the, the show's writing. Definitely. Yeah, I'm just I'm interested in this idea of like, I think we're all like expecting something big to happen at the the Connors wedding episode next week, because one of the, the very theatrical motifs on this show is that there are no like love and money are so intertwined for these people that there are no major life events that happen that are not disrupted or overshadowed by deal making in some sense. And yet also, you know, Johnny just spoke about the the third season kind of zagging. You know, the big zag I feel like in that season was the retired janitors episode, the uh, the shareholders meeting where everybody was expecting it was this confrontation that had been like built up so much over like the previous like season and change that everybody was expecting this like big dramatic, I don't know, like David Mamet showdown or something. Everybody's going to be screaming right. at each other. It's going to be very high intensity and it turns into this like French drawing room farce instead. And that I think is really key to the show's perspective because when you think about it, it's like, how could they have gone any other direction? Because there are no stakes there. Because the thing that these people are fighting over is something that just doesn't matter. And that I think is exactly why the show takes that zag and it builds in the presidential storyline. Because what you talk about of this, what we're talking about, this idea of circularity and this sort of critique of the show, I think actually is more appropriately described as insularity. That is the thing that becomes frustrating about it when it feels like not only that these characters are stuck in holding patterns, but that the things that they're arguing about don't actually have any real world stakes because they're often these sort of like siloed rich people spaces, non-spaces. And there's not a sense of what actually this effect this has on the outside world. Um, something like the presidential conversation, that changes things quite a bit. And so, you know, as we think about getting towards the end of this show, um, I think that like the first season climaxed and, you know, the eruption of like actual violence and actual death and tragedy, um, something like that has to happen here for the show, not to just break out of that circularity, but that sense of insularity too. Although I will say even with that, like the, the issue, the big issue I have with the Pierce plot line, and this is speaking to myself as a viewer, not the presumed viewer, although maybe they're exactly the same. But this whole sort of uh, sinister tension that, you know, the CNN and Fox News of this world will become the same entity. It doesn't really move the needle for me. Right. I mean, it's like, uh, oh, do cares? you think that's where they're going with that? I hadn't thought about that. 
Well, well, I, I think this idea that there'll be a, at least a single family or a single board uh, in charge of manufacturing consent on both sides of the political aisle, that is kind of the uh, mustache twiddling evil scheme that I feel they've been working on for a couple seasons. Yeah, the kids for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's, you know, that's their fantasy of it. But uh, but having read manufacturing consent, I'm kind of like, no shit. That's exactly what is, that's exactly right. what happens. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but other viewers might feel otherwise, and maybe there is a legitimate tension built into that. But you know, th- that's why a lot of the Pierce stuff to me just always kind of feels uh, a little flat. Yeah, I think with the Pierce stuff, they try and ground it in the fact that Logan really hates the Pierces, that it sort of reflects his um, disdain for for old money, particularly liberal old money. Yeah, um, and it's I do too. Watching the show, I mean, am I wrong that like it's a, it's a credit? <laughs> they do to a the great sh- job. They do a great job. L- like every good. scene with the Pierces is like the scenes in the Aviator when Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> <laughs> goes to the Hepburn compound, you know. And it's like even though this guy is also ostensibly despicable, the fact that these people are so together and polished and capital L liberal, they seem a hundred times more despicable than the Roys. Right. Like, like maybe the- that's me being stuck with the Roys for too long, or maybe. Maybe that's just really. No, I, I, I don't think you were alone there. I think after the Turnhaven episode um, in season two, a lot of people were like, wow, I did not think I could despise a family more than I despise the Roy's. I mean, they just did such a good job writing that. But yeah, I mean, the 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 fact that it continually resurfaced does feel a little tedious. But yeah, I mean, it, it seems here they're trying to use it to, um, you know, now just sort of muddy the waters of what's going on with the deal and... Um, also, again, it's it's um, you know it, what it represents to Logan and um, that he hates the Pierces and he hates the, their media and how great would it be if we can fuck over Dad in this in this last way? Um, right. But but I'm not sure how you know I was I was talking to Brendan like after the episode and I was like, where's the Pierce de- deal in all of this? Like, and he's like, you know, it's just. I don't think anything's changed. <laughs> like it's I'm not, just there. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what they're building to with the Pierce deal. The thread that you just brought up there, John, is is an interesting one that I hadn't really thought about because the way that I've been thinking about the Pierce stuff is I do think obviously they're intentionally comparing you know, the status of, you know, PGN, the Pierce News Channel, and ATN. But the way they talk about it, because this episode opens with them sort of like clowning on the very boring daytime uh, PGN coverage, um, it seemed to me more representative of just the sort of limbo state that kind of mainstream, quote-unquote, liberal media is in, like, post-Trump specifically. Like, I was thinking a lot of just, like, the, like, constant turmoil and shakeups that are going on at CNN where they're desperately trying to figure out, like, what is their thing? How do they, like, rebuild whatever, like, credibility that they supposedly lost with the right? Um, That's what I really thought of there more than, you know, the idea that they were going to become some, like, two-headed beast um, spouting the same ideology. Because I think the because the other real thing is there that what ATN has, and this episode demonstrates that quite dramatically, is it has this real expression of like Logan's id, which is one of, I think, the subtler and the best articulated things that the show does is show how Logan's psychology manifests itself. You know, you put Logan in at one end and out the other end comes like, you know, Republican ideology, basically, um, and the the show is very good at showing how uh, he, you know, he 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 manifests that into the world. And the siblings just don't have 
anything like that. I mean, they are in their own way little like twisted copies of some at various aspects of Logan's personality, but none of them really have like the willpower or the vision to really articulate that. So I don't, I never thought there was really any danger of something like that happening. And even Kendall seems to be sort of out of step with his own buzzwordy new media mentality from the first couple seasons. I mean, when he describes their approach as global, global, local, local, uh, it, it just is the kind of sentiment where it's like, well, you're offering absolutely no vision whatsoever, you know? Yeah, I mean, if I don't know if we want to talk about Logan's speech now. It's not exactly uh, at that point in our outline, but, but if you just compare the Logan speech in this episode and and the energy around it and the energy in the room and how, uh, you know, domineering he was to Ken's life, lifeboat speech in uh, the first season where, you know, everyone's kind of just bewildered and, and um, yeah, he's throwing out the business school terms. And again, this gets, this gets back to a central tension of the show that surfaced in the pilot where, you know, yeah, you, you know a lot of big words and you went to, to school, but sometimes it's just a big dick competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that tension has has, uh, you know, carried on throughout the show. And um, even if Logan is, you know, clearly kind of <laughs> on the way out, not doing so well. I mean, his ability to get up there and deliver a speech like that, um, you know, he knows his kids can't do anything like that. Yeah, it's I mean, true. there's there's no comparison between Logan and the next generation. I think it's totally fair to talk about the speech now, because I mean, yeah, just thinking about again, we have our own theories about where this season is going. Obviously, there's this widely felt sense that something happens, something has to happen to Logan this season, right? Like that the show needs Logan to die for it to conclude. And again, this is not in like a not in like a Sopranos moralistic sense where Logan needs to die so he can be punished for his bad deeds. That's not the point. The point is that you know, a, a proper succession could never happen as long as Logan is alive, because as we see, he's he's holding on too tightly to whatever's left. Um, but, you know, e- everything in these first two episodes is just colored by that nagging thought is like, is this the last time we're going to see Logan do X, Y, Z? You know, this would certainly be, you know, this expression of like ultimate vitality of Cox just like going off and doing this Shakespeare monologue. Um, that, that would certainly be a very interesting way uh, to do that. Um, because, you know, if, if, if this is the last we see of him uh, sort of addressing the troops, he's not going to have many more chances to kind of, you know, show off his chops, right, in this way. Yeah, I mean, I think I – this is something that I got hung up on watching the speech, but there, there's like an impactfulness to that speech, but he is just as bullshit as Kendall or any of them. Like For he has sure. that thing yeah. that kind yep. of leads yep. into it. Where he's like, oh, we're up 15 in viewership, but uh, down 40, or but also up 40 in cost is 15 equal to 40. And it's like, well, those are not flat numbers that are equivalent to each other. They're not percentages of the same whole. And you're getting people to buy into this idea that you're failing because you know that one static number is larger than another static number, even though the two do not relate in the same way. But like, that's just the same sort of like, he's able to do that in a way where you maybe don't notice how bullshit it is. You know what I mean? Uh, where he's trying to like hook people in on this idea that's like, well, we're not as successful as we need to be. We need to be more successful. But his entire pitch on that is just built on, I mean, I'm no uh, mathematician. I almost said arithmetician. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly didn't scan for me. 
Yeah, I mean, the the weight of it definitely scanned for me. I mean, again, it's it's a lot of uh, bullshit words and bluster and, you know, but, but he's good. He's good at flattering the egos of the people in the room. He said, you know, you guys are the fucking best. We're pirates. You know, we're all in this together. It's very, uh, you know, <laughs> I saw a lot of journalists on Twitter talking about Rupert Murdoch this week and how he did the same thing and uh, stood up on, on a bunch of boxes of photocopier paper and rallied the troops. Um, and I, I, I loved the way they used the score here. I mean, it was like, it was, it was almost like a little bit campy and I loved it. And I, I think the show has earned it. I think Cox has earned it. Um, and yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a difference in genuine leadership, obviously, where it's like when, when right. Logan and Brian Cox deliver uh, a bullshit, meaningless speech where you're using kind of buzzy words and fuzzy math, people will believe in it because it's believable. Where Kendall will always be like the dickhead futzing with the lid on a bottle of $8 right. water. You know? He's just always nervous, yeah. Exactly. Cox is so, so self-possessed that uh, you, you you believe anything he says, you know? And it, it, it's sort of a Trumpian effect where <laughs> I wouldn't say Trump <laughs> is as, uh, you know, eloquent in delivering his messages, but it, it's sort of the same thing where it's, uh, you know, you're, you're throwing red meat at people and they're, they're right. like, yeah, this sounds good. This looks good. Like, fuck yeah. Okay. I'll follow you to my death, but not right. this guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like the equivalence between uh, Logan and Kendall there because, yeah, just like Kendall is a bullshit NBA guy whose only move ever is like pivot to video, things like that. <laughs> you know, Logan is kind of the same thing. It's just like kind of austerity moves and stuff like, oh, costs are too high. We need to cut costs. This is the only thing he really knows. That. Yeah. We got to cut costs. The, the air conditioning in this room. How much is it? We're, we're That's what I said. It, pizzas. I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like not not to uh, be cliche, but it's the classic like, f you know, he's uh, showing his Scottish origins, right? Where it's like, uh, what's the phrase? Penny smart, pound foolish, where he'll uh, wait, fritter away $2 billion in a hypothetical fight with his kids. But the AC bill is too high and we're right. ordering too much pizza. Why can't we reheat it? Uh, but that's also just like old school rich guy stuff where, you know. It's so you him. I mean, it's it's so him at this point. It's It would be weird for him, for us not to to have him come in and complain about something like that. Exactly. Yeah, this it's like an airplane hangar. What's the aircon bill? Like that's the immediate <laughs> yeah. thing that registers with them. <laughs> God, that room was so nightmarish to me. I don't know that the blue, the color of the blue was so oppressive that the the fact that it did feel like an airplane hangar. I don't know. I was expecting like signage on the walls, maybe some big posters of the the ATN babes, you know. Um well, it just looked awful in there. Well, the way I read that room, I didn't see any glimpse of like the ATN set, but the way that room struck me was a little bit in the very, it, very back. Yeah, the, the it struck me. It's one of those rooms that's it's just designed to be seen in the background of the like anchor shots, right? So you can see all yeah. the people like hard at work, you know, crunching the the poll numbers or whatever mm -hmm. behind sending them on one email. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, because yeah, because yeah, I'm sure as part of that, it's like, well, are do all these people actually work here? Are they all actually doing things that are germane to the news operation? Or are they people you just brought in to like fluff the volume, right? Just like right. just room meat. As, as it's the said. American ideal. I, I, I did a, uh, I wrote something about Las Vegas buffets once. And I remember talking to people who designed the buffets and they said, you always want to give the impression of abundance. So you always have to have 20% more food than anyone will eat because you don't want people to think that there's go not going to be enough food. So having reporters clacking away in the background, I think follows the same principle. 
yeah, they're just typing like lorem ipsum stuff. The, the, uh, that's the the one other thing I liked in that speech is when he talks about uh, their their rivals, like in the in the back of their chauffeured cars, which he literally just took to get there. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, a classic succession bit of just obvious hypocrisy, uh, but a fun little bit of Logan's personality and his sort of like anti elite posturing that lands very well, I think, um, in that speech. But uh, but yeah, I mean, talking of of Logan, I, I guess to move through kind of like the standout scenes in the episode, we want to move, uh, I guess, all the way to the end to that confrontation between the kids and Logan in this really awful karaoke bar. Um, we looked this up. Oh. This uh, this bar is called Maru Karaoke Lounge. And Good luck getting just, in there this weekend. <laughs> I just looked at the reviews on TripAdvisor. I'm not going to read them on the air. I don't want to get sued by Maru Karaoke Lounge by like airing tons of uh, potentially baseless criticism against them. But they have some very funny reviews on their website uh, on TripAdvisor. It, it does not sound like a like a fun place to go. The weird like industrial kind of vibes, right? Like it's like all like concrete with like little like colored cladding and lights and stuff. Um, it's kind of a cold space. I always find something antiseptic. I mean, I get the appeal ostensibly of the private karaoke room, but the entire democratized appeal of karaoke is that you're doing it in a bar and there will be bad singers and there will be good singers and you have to wait your turn. Uh, You know, the private room has always struck me as something of an affront when it comes to karaoke. But of course, it makes total sense for them to go to one. Yeah, it's like if you have a private room, I think the idea is that you have like enough people that it still feels like a party, right? You don't want to exactly. be doing private yeah. karaoke for like two or three people. That is really weird. And especially if those but people is, are the Roys, you know? It's very Roy kid of them to just be four of them in a room and none of them actually even want to do the karaoke or seem to have ever done karaoke in their lives based on the way that they talk about it. The fact that singing Famous Blue Raincoat is even an option is... Uh, bizarre to me well i got the vibe from reading some of the reviews that the song selection at this bar may be perhaps rather limited so i wonder if that was just like the best of the bad options i was also very right. struck by the fact that like connor was familiar with famous blue raincoat i mean leonard cohen is obviously a famous artist but like i had never really given much thought obviously to what any of these people besides ken's musical tastes are right so i was right. just wondering it was like what is connor's like ipod like i'm, I'm curious about this now well, that's a great thing about karaoke is you don't have to know the words. You can still kind of groan along to uh, Leonard Cohen's Sprechgesang style. But also, I, this is just like a total aside, but it is very true to the, uh, you know, Korean or Japanese private karaoke room that even during a Leonard Cohen song, you know, the music video on screen is like two kids in Busan on a bridge or something <laughs> like that. You know? Yeah, those uh, those clubs and and karaoke bars and in Koreatown and other places sort of downtown Manhattan are a very distinct vibe. I've never been to one that was quite like that, but uh, it's been a while. So, so growing up in the New York city area, going to Koreatown to do karaoke is like kind of like a rite of passage. Um, No one IDs you, you get a ton of liquor for free and it's just like a fun thing to do with a bunch of people who are under 21 and you want to get drunk. Um, every to all the under twenty one <laughs> listeners, uh, <laughs> sorry. <Hopefully. laughs> um, it might be different now. It's been a while since I've been under twenty one. But yeah, like every millennial I know from New York, from uh, a range of socioeconomic backgrounds. Again, I don't know anyone as rich as the Roy's, but I know people who are pretty close. Um, 
you know, has this K-Town karaoke phase and, and the kids grew up in New York and it doesn't seem like they ever did any stupid shit like this. I mean, Connor references karaoke as something from the movies and uh, it was just another reveal into how dry and dull their, their childhood must have been even surrounded by so much luxury and, and the, you know, the hammer that Logan, um, you know, laid down on them and how strict he must have been. Uh, just the fact that, that this was a, a novel experience for them as, as millennial kids from New York. But Brendan, yeah, you yeah. asked a question, you know, what, what what is Connor's iPod like? And, you know, not to, you know, read his selections like ink blots or something like that. Although what the hell else are we doing if not that? Uh, yeah. You know, it's, he, he, he floats the idea of singing Desperado and then right. ends up singing a Leonard Cohen song. And, and both of them have this kind of heroic, self-aggrandizing, lonely hearted uh, yeah. feeling yeah. to them uh, that is certainly a glimpse into how he regards himself, if not necessarily who he is. Well, particularly in that moment. Um, yeah, so so preceding that was obviously um, the kids being late to Connor and Willa's rehearsal dinner because um, Logan uh, got word that the kids were making moves on Pierce and he basically, uh, you know, did not allow them to get into the helicopter they had chartered to go back to the city. So, so we end up in uh, Connor's rehearsal dinner room, which um, is a restaurant in Midtown that I found. It's called. Oh, it's. Sorry, uh, you said it's called the Grill. I'm like, it's a steakhouse. <laughs> yeah. So it's literally that was just also called the like Grill. A, it, it was also a, a very big like airplane hangar type of room. Um, That's how you know it's a fancy restaurant too, when it's just like the grill or yeah. steak, you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it, it, it has that sort of modern minimalist quality instead of being yeah, so, something gaudy like a man's name. Right, right. It's uh, and, and there's so many like New York restaurants like that that are just yeah, um, just very very bare bones. Um, but I think yeah. You know, this was a big Connor Roy episode. Maybe we should just, I'm going to do a quick rundown of Connor's lore. The Connor lore. What, yeah, let's do it. What we, what, what we know about him, because um, we know the least about him of any of the kids. So um, looking at all four seasons, this is what we know. Um, Connor's mother was a philanthropist. Uh, we know she was involved with the origins of the Reckney Ball, and she was particularly interested in um, the inner city kid uh, you know, dance scholarship that, that the Reckney Ball, um, you know, uh, uh, furnishes for for kids in the city. So we can assume um, that Connor, his mother, and Logan spent at least some time in New York together because Connor does reminisce on this um, as, as um, and this was in episode uh, Sad Sack Wall's Trap. Uh, we know Connor's mother was mentally ill and institutionalized. Um, we know that from episode 208 Dundee. Uh, Connor also says that his siblings have not been through what he has. Uh, nothing to really expand upon that, but I'm sure it does have something to do with his mother. Um, we learn now in this episode that Logan was likely the one that institutionalized Connor's mother. We know from the finale of the last season that Connor spent three years of his childhood without Logan. And it's unclear why, where, or with whom, but it seems to sort of implicate the siblings that um, he was with, uh, you know, Shiv, Ken, and uh, Roman. And uh, finally, Connor, you know, has tried to take on 
fathering tasks for his younger siblings. He has the clearest memories. Uh, you know, he's obviously older than them by a significant gap. Um, there's the Montana fly fishing story from Roman in the last season. Um, he took them camping. He recalls the, the dog cage, which becomes, um, you know, a huge motif for the show. So, so that's, that's basically what we have for Connor right now. Um, and that's a, that's a tough history. I wanted to say that I thought this plot element of, you know, them getting here, there and Willa leaving and things falling apart does show the ways in which uh, the show kind of subverts standard tropey things. I mean, it's already been teased in the trailer and stuff that the wedding, that they at least get on the big boat to go to the wedding. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the bride having cold feet and things falling apart in this uh dramatic arch way the night before where the editing the the result of that already feels a little predetermined at least to the viewer that's seen any trailers i think is kind of clever because we get these the this sort of idea that uh what what's happening is not that their union is falling apart but they're mutually agreeing to enter a loveless marriage uh and they're both aware of the fact of that lovelessness and i think that that is a different and sort of tragedy that I haven't really seen depicted in the same way as, you know, the bride having misgivings and then having a stiff upper lip about it. Well, the thing I really like is just how, and you talk about the show subverting expectations, but the way that all that is kind of off screen, like the way that the siblings show up and like, it's already happened. Like they catch Willa on Mm -hmm. the way out and they just kind of like get, they get caught up on this later, which is, kind of typical of the way that the show tends to treat Connor and Willa as, you know, basically, you know, comic relief uh, side characters. So it wouldn't really make sense uh, for them to be like the center of a huge kind of blow up scene like that. But it fits that like very theatrical idea. I really like where, you know, you're constantly following these kids around in these, uh, in these elite spaces or in these sort of transitional spaces. And there, meanwhile, there are things happening around them that they just like don't grasp. And especially with Connor, it seems increasingly in this episode, there's a huge history there as Gabby kind of like teases out that's been alluded to throughout the seasons. And the kids just like, they just don't care. They're, they, 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 it doesn't affect them. They're, he's not really part of the family um, in a very cool right. way. I mean, to 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 the credit of of Kendall and Roman, they seem to be a little bit concerned about Connor in this episode. I mean, Shiv doesn't even want to go up to the rehearsal. She's like, "We have deals to do," and they're like, "You know, no, come on." Um, and you know, there's something later in the karaoke room scene where Connor starts kind of like ruminating on Willa hooking up with somebody else, and Ken settles him down. Um, but yeah, I I don't think that they. Uh, you know, have grasped the weight of what Connor's been through <clears throat> in his life and, and the absence of his mother and, and Logan's role and all of that because they haven't grasped what they've been through. I mean, they're starting to a little bit, but it's, it's uh, you know, we're a little bit at the too little, too late point for that. Um, you know, uh, the the final karaoke scene that has been likened to, to Austerlitz, um you know, it's, uh, do we want to get into that now? Is well, I mean, I, I suppose since we're talking about the Connor stuff specifically, we may as well stay with this and just talk about that, that final sort of like parting, those, those sort of like parting lines that he gives, you know, he has that whole bit about, he's a, he's a plant that grows on rocks. And the great thing about having, you know, a family that doesn't love you is you get used to it, you know, and the, how he doesn't need Oof. love, um, which is, uh, a, a lot, a lot of really good writing that, that Ruck delivers really well. This is probably the, this is, 
I mean, I think certainly Ruck's best performance on the show so far, um, barring whatever is going to go down this wedding next week. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe they'll give him some really juicy material, assuming that his wedding is not upstaged by some other machinations. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I really but also like- constitutes Brandon, like a, like an actual psychological insight on the part of a character. Like it, it is act, you know, for him to say that of himself in this sort of frank way, I think it disarms the other siblings because they have no vantage on themselves. That's anywhere near that clear. So even though that sentiment is very, uh, depressing, I suppose, uh, I found something bracing and weirdly empowering about it that, you know, even if this guy is a stone cold sociopath who doesn't require love or light or whatever, at least he knows that of himself, which is something give, gives him at least uh, in my mind, an emotional edge over pretty much everybody else on the show. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, suppose... that's fair. And I, I, I would uh, agree that the line about, oh, you all need love from daddy, you know, was was very, you know, astute and correct. But um, I'm not sure Connor is a stone cold sociopath and doesn't need love. I think uh, we've seen since season one that he's been kind of looking for love and, and he's so desperate to have it that he's kind of overlooking the fact that that Willa doesn't even really like him that much. Um, the presidential run is, you know, for ego and flattery. Um, and, and you know, he still holds on to the past with anger and emotion, like threatening to reveal all this um, nasty stuff about Waystar's history. Um, so I'm not sure if I would call him a sociopath. I mean, it definitely struck a different tone and was a um, one of the more shocking sympathetic Connor moments, but I actually found it, uh, you know, kind of, you know, very emotional and, and, and odd and foreboding more than anything. I think that the dead insects thing, it was, it was dark. Um, so I, I think it, it, uh, you know, foreshadows something, um, you know, quite sinister. Yeah. I mean, maybe sociopath is too far, definitely. But <laughs> I, I, I do think that like, there's a way in which, uh, Connor performs his own identity that seems way more obviously a performance than with the other kids. I mean, the the level of, uh, you know, cynical disavowal that has to be going on with his relationship with Willa to know that, I mean, we know what their relationship is like. Everyone knows what their relationship is like. He is essentially subsidizing and buying into this fantasy and can limb that cognitive dissonance. Uh, his presidential run always seems like a total lark from the beginning that is a little bit unserious even his own in his own mind. Uh, I, I just think that there's a way in which he sort of navigates the world that, yeah, I don't know. It's It, it seems... He has less of a sense of entitlement as as the other kids, I think. Maybe that's that's it, yeah. Testament to what what he's been through. I think maybe he's just so beaten down by the fact that he has gone through all this trauma and he lost his mother and he didn't have his father and then he lost his father to three other siblings. Um, It's a very sad state of affairs. I mean, and I I agree. It was a moment of self-awareness and and something that we haven't seen from him. but I don't know. I don't know if he's actually uh, aware of of the pain that's actually underneath the surface there, just as any of the other kids. Yeah, like you I'm know, curious to see how exactly he and Willow reconcile and make their way to the altar and, you know, under what terms and what delusions, shared delusions or, yeah. you know, divergent delusions that oh God, will be united. Their vows. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they wrote yeah. their own vows. I'm sure he wrote his. 
I mean, he's also just like yeah. he's much older than the other kids, right? I mean, that's the other thing is he's just been living with this stuff for a lot longer than they have. Yeah. And he's also and he been never living got involved in the business. Yeah, he's never been involved with the business. He's been out in the desert for a long part of that, and presumably he's been single, alone, childless for you know most of that. Um, and what does Connor do with his time? He spends a lot of time reading about libertarian philosophy, I suppose. Um, you know, I mean, the the idea that Connor thinks that like, oh, Safe, I don't need safeguarding love is, wilderness. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's self-deluding in a sense because he just seek that in other ways. I mean, what is, you know, running for president if not the biggest gesture of please love me, America, then, you know, is, yeah. is possible, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, Although, I, you know, yeah. he, he, he's going to get 1% or, or less of love out of that. <laughs> yeah, but... um. I don't know. It's uh, it's gonna be a scary wedding. I I feel bad for him, but I also think that there's there's fertile ground here for something really strange to happen with Connor. Um, this was this was definitely new the way that he sort of snapped at the end of this episode. And maybe um, it's not sincere, but just kind of reflexive. Where you know he he's kind of seen the writing yeah. on the wall with his marriage and being like, well, I don't even need love. Let's get out of here. You know. He has these moments where he sort of <laughs> goes into death drive spiral, where like. I'm thinking back to the season two finale on the boat and uh, he's stressing out about Willa's play doing bad and he asks Logan for a hundred million dollars and he's losing his mind and they're all talking about who the sacrifice should be and he's like, can I just throw myself over the side of the boat? How about that? Um, <laughs> and it, It's kind of like, it's, it's funny, but it's, uh, he says it seriously. Right. And um, so I think there's, you know, there's a very, very, there's a lot of darkness that, that Connor is living with in his psyche. And uh, it will be interesting to see if they um, tease that out more. Definitely seems um, like but, the worst vibes going into this wedding of any of the weddings so far. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and it's a photo finish. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I would say like uh, talking about the the so-called um, karaoke therapy scene in terms of the Austerlitz echoes. Um, I saw it. I, I basically agree. And, and I know Brendan has similar feelings that um, even though, you know, uh, there was a lot of similar dynamics and, and, and uh, you know, chatter going on to, to Austerlitz uh, therapy scene. And then of course that explosive final scene in Austerlitz, um, the confrontation feels somewhat flatter substantively. Um, it makes sense based on what's happened in the last however many months and, and all of their current positions. And so I still found it an effective and kind of logical retread of Austerlitz. Um, and, you know, I think Logan, he is, you know, Brendan mentions that he's trying to, to placate them for the vote, but I also think he's struggling a lot with the estrangement, which he unconvincingly, you know, tries to convey by saying, you know, I missed you at my party. Um, you know, it's a big deal that the kids cut Logan off. They've never done this before. Um, they use the words no contact in this episode, which is kind of like therapy speak for, you know, dealing with, with narcissistic family members or loved ones or whatever. And um, I think, you know, the, it's it's a big deal that Shiv and Ken are finally united against him. That alliance, which appears sturdy for the first time throughout the series, and the way that they bounce off of each other while they're bullying Dad packs, I think, a lot of the emotional weight in this scene. 
like in Austerlitz, they each challenged dad, but it was never as a united front. Um, and Ken here is mostly in sort of like mockery mode, but Shiv does hit some real moments of clarity similar to, to, to Ken in that final Austerlitz scene, uh, especially when she said to Logan, you don't know everything just because you say it doesn't make it true. Everyone just agrees with you and believes you. So it becomes true. And then you can turn around and go, oh, see, look, I was right. But that's not how it is. You're a human fucking gaslight. Um, so, you know, there's there's some catharsis there, but I think the nature of this reckoning is just it's too late. Um, there's no more therapy that can be done with Logan. You know, he's completely closed off. He doesn't have any emotional honesty here like he had in the end of Austerlitz. Austerlitz kind of felt like forward emotion somehow, like it left an opening, um, even if it was incredibly, you know, dark and, and um, but 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 after everything that's happened, what what this felt like to me was just kind of stagnation, late late stage Roy's, late stage capitalism, just everything kind of coming to a close and and nobody being any better off. Um, this was mostly like Shiv and Ken, their egos, everything that they've lost, you know, both real and perceived, and and their anger at Dad, and it works. He's obviously furious, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's you know making him sick and will hasten his demise. Uh, Roman is maybe earnestly looking for some resolution in this scene as he's the only one to actually bring up the reason that they've had no contact with their father, which is what happened in Italy. And Logan's answer is completely impersonal. He's not interested in apologizing, even though, you know, he sort of makes a fake apology. Um, you know, and it's completely isolating for Roman and Connor, especially Roman, who's, you know, having such a hard time with estrangement and Connor, who's having a particularly hard night. I also want to say that I found the way that Ken... Um, uses Roman and Connor's childhood trauma to be very exploitative. Um, I, I, I see, you know, people in the, in the standum being like, oh, look at Ken looking out for his siblings, but that was completely self-serving. Um, you don't get to exploit other people's traumas like that without their permission. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not an altruistic thing to do. Um, Roman has to basically say, I was so annoying. Everybody hit me, which is so sad. Um, and, you know, it just, it makes me think that, um, you know, this Kendall and Shiv alliance is, it's on very shaky ground where it's just about getting back at dad. And, and it's hard to imagine what it looks like the two of them together when he's gone. But I think, um, the fact that, that they, they were so allied and that they were really kind of finishing each other's sentences. Um, it, it really made the scene hit harder. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of cringing because I'm thinking of, you know, last season, something that I said a couple of times was, you know, the, the show really needed like a Ken and Shiv sort of like alliance at some point because the characters were, were so opposed during that season. And there's so many ways in which they're very similar and they can kind of they could relate to each other on certain things and perhaps help each other, you know, grow on certain things, you know, if they were able to to, to see those and be allied. Uh, but, but the team up we, we get in this episode is like, it's really a match made in hell, right? They just exacerbate yeah. <laughs> each other's worst tendencies in this scene, which, yeah, I mean, when we were, when we approached the idea of this being kind of, you know, like a coda or a sequel to that family therapy episode, Austerlitz, where there's that initial attempt at like formal therapy with Griffin Dunn 
Um, and then later that an actual real raw confrontation between the family members that is over very quickly because they can't handle <laughs> any really amount of truth being spilled. Um, you know, Logan has adopted this placating position in this scene because, you know, that we should say that, like, again, that the plot matter here, which is, which is a little bit head turning for me because I had to kind of reestablish all this for myself. This is why it's really good to rewatch the show because often they'll just throw a huge, like, wrench in the plot and you have to spend a while kind of, like, getting up to speed on it. But the, 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 the thing that's important here that people may have forgotten, that I had certainly forgotten, was that the kids, while they're frozen out of the holding company... Uh, the family trust that can approve the sale to Gojo, the board still has to approve the deal. And the three kids, Ken, Roman, and Shiv, still have their board seats, even though they've been locked out of the holding company after the season three finale. Um, Ken's had his forever. They couldn't. They they talked about firing him last season, remember? But they 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 decided it was a liability to fire him. Um, Roman still has his, and Shiv got hers from the the negotiations with Sandy and retired janitors. So there's actually this block if they ally themselves with these other quote unquote activist board members, specifically Sandy and Stewie, they could actually kill this deal. And although they're saying it's because you know they want to squeeze a little bit more money out of Matson. And there's this plot point where Stewie is sharing the valuation of another company that had done a similar deal recently in this ongoing theme of like the consolidation era of these media conglomerates. Um, it's obviously just about trying to screw with Logan, right? And that's why, you know, Gabby, when you say this scene is a bit flatter than Austerlitz, it's because it's very clear that there's no actual communication happening here, right? Like Logan just has something that he wants. And Ken and Shiver just venting, and Roman and Connor are just shutting down. Can I say two things about that that struck me thinking about it? Is first of all, is it? I mean, obviously they're trying to fuck with Logan. It's the whole the way they relate to each other. But isn't part of it that they've overextended themselves on the Pierce deal, so they yes. need to make more money off the Gojo deal in order to make up the difference between what they have in their pockets and what they offered in the previous episode? I think, I think, I think there's that? a bit of that. I'm just not sure if the number they're talking they're, about, because he, he said it could be worth 100 mil to them. If they're, so they're talking about an extra 100 million each. I don't know if that's going to, yeah. I don't know if that's really I mean, going to make up the difference for what billion. they promised. Yeah. But, but the other thing I wanted to say compared Shift to that. Uh, does say in the episode that they, they over-promised on Pierce and that this right. would be part of. Uh, yeah, the they did. That's true. So, that's also muddled yeah. up together with all her other kind of like, she's already kind of like not interested in Pierce, right? And trying to back out of it because she's really interested in Waystar. I wanted to say as far as like the Austerlitz comparisons is I think a difference here is that, you know, Logan is going through this pantomime of I'm sorry, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, this is a business meeting that the kids are treating like family therapy. And for Logan, it's yeah. a business meeting because I, I believe that he is right. And everything we know about Matson and this deal suggests that he will not give any more money yeah. right. and they yeah. are just going to fuck the whole thing over. So watching Shiv and Kendall kind of tear into him and in this like, why would you say you're sorry way? is yeah. you know embarrassing for them because while it may be emotionally satisfying it you know show they're totally like when he says to them you're not serious people yeah they're it's just babies yeah exactly so i think the difference here is that you actually see logan weirdly losing power uh in the other scene the kids were kind of like wielding this ability to exercise their demons over him which was cathartic even for the viewer in this scene Maybe pity's not quite the right word, but you're like, why don't you listen to your dad for once? Because he's right. You're not going to get anything, you know? Yeah. Uh, that that was really the feeling that I had watching it, you know? That makes and a I lot of sense. And it obviously pissed him off, I think, both 
the, you know, less so the, the mocking of him because we know that he actually secretly gets off on that, but more just um, the fact that, that Shiv and Ken seem to be resigned in their positions to not listening to dad, to defying him. Um, and, and it's just another reminder for him that there is no suitable successor. That's probably, you know, why he ends up calling Roman later at the end of the night. He's like, this is <laughs> my one last shot. Um, but, but yeah, Logan was agitated after that confrontation. I, 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 can I just say I loved how quickly he stormed out of the room, Carrie, Car- like practically in sync with him. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was, they kind of glided out together like so fast. I loved that shot. Um, Cox is really in, in primo form this season, I think gunning for that Emmy. Um, and I, I really liked his quick conversation with Carrie on the street. Um, you know, seeing the homeless person and then feeling enraged at his children, which, you know, is, is uh, one of the reasons that he, you know, continually uh, doesn't trust in his children's ability to take over the business or he doesn't respect them because they were born privileged and they have absolutely no idea how lucky they are. Uh, it's something that, you know, obviously rattles Logan and then talking about how fat the rats in the city are, which he's not wrong about. Um, you know, that he doesn't know anymore. And, and once again, you know, just kind of like facing this threat of, of change, mortality, irresolution. Um, I thought, um, yeah, Cox was, was very powerful there. Even, yeah, even if The fat was, rats thing I thought too was a nice counterpoint to the last episode where he has this kind of bracing, revitalizing, soul-searching walk through Central Park and then goes and sits in a diner and drinks hot coffee in the middle of the night. And that is kind of the very idyllic version of an evening in New York City. Right. Uh, and then he has the other part where there's just a bunch of uh, garbage and rodents it's, everywhere. It's, it's been kind of a New York season. For me, this maybe was like the most New York episode of the series. And it's kind of funny for me to say this because I, I just recently talked on a recording. I'm not sure which one um, about how New York city as a setting doesn't really matter to succession's project. I mean, right. um, you know, but, but in this episode, you know, there were some kind of like really stunning overhead shots. There was mm-hmm. the, the classic dive bar, which is a, you know, a cop bar in Midtown that's been used in, um, you know, a bunch of classic movies. There was the K-Town karaoke. Um, I really, you know, I, I, I appreciate that Succession is not a show that tries to make New York, you know, one of the characters because it, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't matter. This could be going on anywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that they used New York here to match the energy of the episode pretty well. Um, characters in succession are rarely seen on city streets for more than a moment or two and they're almost never interesting shots with the big exception being Ken after the vote of no confidence but but here we get like very NYC vibe outdoor scenes with the Stewie meet with Ken going into the subway stairs to call Matson. like I mentioned Logan and Carrie walking at the end you know the kids kind of navigating the city getting around um, yeah, it, it was interesting to me that they sort of, uh, you know, folded New York in a little bit more than they usually do. And also as much as like, yeah, I mean, like everyone, well, like I guess like almost everyone, I totally resent that whole, the city is a character. The city is a setting. <laughs> uh, but they, that is an absolute fantasy of New York City or any sort of global metropole where it's like you can be the scion of one of the wealthiest people in the world and slip into a dive bar unnoticed and like eat chicken wings and beer and no one will give a shit about who you are because you're just some other schmo. And the fact that there's no 
there, there's no uh, feeling that they're being noticed or watched or anything like that. Yeah, that I thought that was I a, thought that with the diner last week with uh, with Logan. I'm like, does anybody recognize him? You think? Like, probably not. Yeah, like nobody's, exactly. The, nobody's paying attention. Yeah, and that that to me is like the fantasy of you know the city more than being able to get good pizza or seeing a right. cool rat. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of good staging and like use of location. We've already talked about several of the locations in this episode. I was just thinking again about how the the staging of that conversation in the karaoke room. Like, obviously, there's something endemic in the idea of karaoke that is suggestive of how the kids are like playing at business and like pretending at business, right? And the and that there's those like inflatable like saxophones and stuff to use as props in the room. <laughs> kind of recalls how, you know, last season the kids had that very weighty conversation in episode two in Ken's daughter's bedroom where they're surrounded by like stuffed animals and things like that. You know, the suggestion of, you know, not just like a lost innocence, but just like the childishness of these characters, basically. Um, this episode is directed by uh, by Becky Martin, who is uh, a veteran of Peep Show and Veep, and you know a lot of these Armstrong Ian Nucci projects. Um, she previously directed season two's Return, and I was watching this. I watched this episode on mute this morning, um, and I was just, I, I was admiring the way a lot of the the group scenes are filmed. Because and the thing that the thing that just really annoyed me about this episode that I thought was just very strange was just there was just like extremely heavy hand with the with the Bertel score in this episode. I, I just didn't get it. I mean, like it, the, usually the the show like brings in music like for interstitials or like sometimes like once or twice an episode when they're really trying to underline something that's going to be important. For for the plot later they'll bring the score in but it just seemed like every time the, the episode seemed like it was slowing down to like focus on a conversation or something like the the score would just pop back up it was very distracting I kind of picked up on that, too, and I just I kind of assumed that it was almost in the mixing or something like that, where there's a lot of scenes where they're competing with crowd noise or, you know, they're in a bar, they're in, they're in a karaoke room, they're at a party, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I kind of picked up on that, too, that it seemed like uh, they had the knobs a little cranked. And I was like, you know, maybe it was just they had to mix it weird. I, I, I definitely I'm, picked up what on I know it. about sound mixing to even say that. <laughs> well, way more than I know. Um, I, I certainly picked up on it, but it's that's because I have been quietly sort of stewing that I think the score has been underused in recent episodes. Um, and I miss sort of like the booming, uh, you know, accompaniment to, to certain scenes that, that the score brings. And I like the way that they change it up. There's already been some, you know, some very, very cool tweaks to it by Bertel this season. But it was, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of, uh, you know, it, it was a little much, but it was fun. And I think it made sense for the episode. It was a little weird when Kendall was getting off the phone with Matson in the subway stair and they played like the the ending episode music. Like they could have literally just ended the episode there. I was like, what? And then they're just like going back to the bar. <laughs> like that was a little strange. But like the right. music that they used when Logan was giving that speech, I think really enhanced the, you know, the like the epicness of that scene and of that speech. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't really have a particular problem with it. Yeah, I just assume, again, we're at this early stage in the season. Like I say, tr- typically when Succession brings the strings in or something like that, usually it's because they're underlining something that says, like, hey, this is going to come back later or something like that. It's a little bit of a nudge. So I, I assume, you know, because we're in this very early stage, there's a lot of stuff in this episode that will come back later. And again, you know, just thinking about that karaoke scene, again, thinking about it in light of, the the notion that Logan is going to shuffle off at some point this season 
I was like, this would be a very interesting, I think very fitting place to leave Logan's relationship with his kids if this is like the last time that they're all together. I think that would really make sense. It's so indignified and kind of, I mean, I don't think it's actually indignified to be in a karaoke room, but for them, it's uh, an indignified way to, you know, have your parting shots at your dad, especially because I have total faith that the deal is going to go sideways and they're all going to be left with their... Uh, dicks in their hands, so yeah, to speak. Proverbially, yeah. Oh, yeah, we should talk about Kendall a bit because it was such a weird... Kendall has been weird this season. No? Yeah, no. Yes. he's in a weird place. Well, we're still trying to figure yeah. out, again, what the show is doing with Kendall this season. Like, I think I think the first episode was pretty clear where the show is going with Shiv this season. Like, like, think, like what's going on with her is pretty clear. She was pretty front and center in that episode. And in this episode, Roman's pretty front and center. Like, the... Like they have that. There's that final reunion with him and Logan, where he's asking him to join ATN, which we we can table that if we want to if we want to uh, go to Ken. But you know that that's a uh, certainly certainly was interesting to me, given you know where the the Logan Roman relationship was left off last season. But he seems to be the the kid that he still has his hooks in the the deepest, right? He's the one that still most openly kind of craves his dad's attention and affection. Uh, but yeah, the Ken thing to me is just um, you know. We've we, I think we talked last week. And we've said this plenty, but the his whole like sort of tragic arc on the show really felt like it concluded last season. Like they could have yeah. killed him off, and it would have felt mm-hmm. right. They didn't do that, um, and I think they can't do that now. They've kind of taken that option off the table because they came so close to it. Uh, but there was a real kind of resolution where he had the tragedy, he had the catharsis, and then he had the kind of coming out the other side where he unburdened himself. Um, so that's why I'm like, I don't know if they can really go back to the well of him and, you know, the waiter's death this season, just because they've, they've exhausted that, it feels to me. It feels like something else has to happen with this character. But the thing I was just reflecting on was I, I think this crops up a lot in some online discussion of the show, but the, the framework that Emily presented to us when she was on the show last season, she talked about the siblings at times modeling these sort of like 4F responses to like trauma, to like abusive parents, you know, fight freeze flatter flight whatever um and you know ken seems to mostly embody that sort of like fight impulse where his impulse is always to defend his siblings and to attack logan um and it just seemed to me that you know for whatever wherever ken is at in his sort of like personal growth or his evolution or whatever that still really typifies a lot of his actions so far this season a lot of very like de- yeah. you know, posturing is as if he's defending other people trying to sort of shield his siblings or really just you know kind of spitefully going after his dad and so i just really see him at this point of like he's kind of a wild card he's gonna he's the charlie kelly-esque you know wild card and at some point this season that is going to uh result in something unpredictable and disastrous happening well, yeah, and I, I think part of it is like that fight response. He's almost back to where he was in season one, where he's in pure addict mode. Yeah. But now the the itch is just like ego and mania and fucking the deal and all this. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to talk a bit more about that call with Matson because when I was watching it happen, I mean, you have this like level of brinksmanship between them. But there's that thing where, as a viewer, again, you're like, no, this guy is has more power than you he can screw he you over he's being honest in a way to you you should not fight about this and you should just get your billions of dollars and walk away but it's almost like again the the addict impulse or the gambler's impulse where you can't even walk away from a good thing because you need that kind of jolt from it yeah was i misinterpreting that uh the end of that conversation he was maybe 
a little, um, you know, he felt a little agitated by the nature of it and the, and that Matson was basically telling him, you know, back off. I, I like how Matson says, you know, I'm not being aggressive. I like you. Sometimes when I talk, I, it's, I code aggressive. Um, but then well, Kendall that's exactly what I got that like Kendall can't stand having his ego checked in right. that way. He, then he immediately texted Stewie and he asked for the business comparables that Stewie was talking about early in the episode to, to justify screwing the deal and it was like that it was that manic addict rush that he got looking at it being like yes we're gonna do this did i read that right i mean i I, that's exactly how i read it and i think what also happened is he incorrectly read what i saw as like just you know a weird form of bracing honesty on mattson's part as weakness you know uh i'm i'm calling you to tell you that this isn't going to work don't do it it's a very you know, Logan response because exact, well, Logan has the exact same conversation with them in the next scene. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, they are re- re- both regressing and also transforming into their dad in the worst possible ways, even though <laughs> Kendall spent um, so much of the end of last last season trying to individuate himself and say, I'm better than you and you're a bad person and I can't do it like that. And he's as you know, as we could have probably predicted. Um, yeah, like I, I saw that scene as just being a total misread on Kendall's part, like a, an absolute inability to judge character and also to just be so and just egotistical. Take things, take things in good faith. Like, you know, well, yeah. not, not everybody is. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, Matson's a very difficult character to read intentionally. Show He's already like kind of shapeshifted a bit from when we first met him, you know, between his first couple of appearances, he sort of presented himself in different ways based on who he was talking to, whether he was talking to Roman, whether he was talking to Logan. So I don't know. My sense of Matson is that he understands the people he's dealing with very well. And in that sense, oughtn't he to know that Ken is going to kind of take this as goading? Um, it, it, it almost mm-hmm. seemed like he was goading him to me. Like, I don't know if that tracks. I'm just throwing this out there. I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced Maybe. one way or the other. Um, it sort of reminds me of the way that Ken handled Lawrence all the way back in episode two when he was saying, you know, hey, you know, my company is going through all this turmoil. Better not write about this on your blog. And, of course, Lawrence writes about it on his blog, which is what Ken wanted him to do in the first right. place. Um, it recalled a, a little bit of that to me. It's, it's, it's just tough to read Matson. I don't know where his head is at as a character, and I don't know what agenda he might have. It doesn't really make sense for him to want to blow up the deal, but it, based on what we've seen of him so far, he, I, I feel like he kind of ought to know that Ken's going to take it that way as a challenge almost. I get kind of confused, too, because Alexander Sarsgaard has been in literally every film and television episode that's been made what in you, the past three years. What a year. So. What, 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 what a couple of years this guy is having. Yeah. yeah. Infinity pool so, style. He keeps multiplying. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, you, you're right that I guess he does have that uh, chameleonic quality. But uh, there's something about the way that uh, Kendall has kind of been – a little bit withdrawn and muddled and kind of doing this like bullshit Buddhist wisdom thing, which by oh the God, way, the if I may say, <laughs> when, when he tells, I think it's Roman, be water, my friend. Yeah. Uh, he's not quoting the Buddha, but Bruce Lee. And I imagine specifically the title of a popular documentary about Bruce Lee that aired on ESPN like two years ago. So, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> that tracks so hard. Yeah. So it, it's, it, I mean, I think, I think Bruce Lee himself was probably taking something from Taoism with that, but you know, uh, Kendall strain of Buddha, is like kid with nunchucks yeah. Chinese wisdom, you know. Uh, but well, that's Roman the thing. It's like I, out. yeah, nice, nice 
nice Tom Ford's Buddha. <laughs> yeah. But so so I think that like that idea that he's been kind of a little on the sidelines, you know, uh, eating nuts out of a little plastic sleeve that I, I think he was kind of like waiting for someone to show their belly so he could strike or something to kind of rouse him back to life. And I think that that's how he took this phone call with Matson. But I kind of think ultimately it will end up being a, a uh, error in judgment on his part. Yeah, I mean, I think... Can't these guys just be happy with their many billions already? Yes. For God's sake. <laughs> I, I think we're all in agreement that that definitely seems where this is going for them to blow up the deal somehow. It would be, I think, it, it would be one of many great ironic endings the show could do is if the kids somehow managed to, kind of like they imply has happened to Pierce, which has had its valuation halved, since season two if they manage somehow to like destroy the value of the company in the process of fighting with each other that would be a good ironic ending for the show i was also curious too when they talk about the comparables with stewie because we really kind of only have this uh binaristic atn pierce thing where in my mind i'm like well what would the comparables be you know, what are are we to presume that there are other sort of media empires like I guess because of how insular the show is, we're led to believe that, you know, Waystar Royco is equivalent to the Disney company. You know, Disney they're the, Fox, they're the like only that. game in town. Well, yeah. I mean, in the pilot, they say fifth biggest media conglomerate in the world. So that's right. Yeah. Somebody else is floating around out there. But, yeah, we just, you know, we haven't heard much about it. But you're right. right. Yeah, it does seem odd. Like, <laughs> What is comparable? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know that like Amazon and Bezos exist in this universe. So, you know, whatever it's, but it, yeah, it just echoes that ongoing theme of just like the, the, you know, the, the writers always have one eye on the front page of the financial times or whatever it is. They're, they're very mm-hmm. aware of, you know, all the, the deals that are going on, all the, the corporate consolidation that's happening. And I'm sure they're very aware of <laughs> everything that's going on at Warner brothers discovery. They're their parent company now too. Yeah, right. and they want the writing to about it to ring truthful, which even, you know, for some of us who are not interested in finance can sometimes be boring, um, I think it's, it's, it's important to them, and I, I respect that. We talked about this a little bit at the top, right, already? I mean, yeah, you know... Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just the, just the idea of, like, whether to conclude the show, does the waiter storyline have to come back? Somehow, like, I think, I just, I, I think that there is, when we were talking about this, Gabby, I think what you're responding to was this sense that in plot terms, it feels like a Chekhov's gun thing for, like, the public to find out about this somehow. And, I mean, I don't know, we've seen three seasons of this show, and I just don't get the sense they really care about that. Like, they did kind of tease that with the, you know, Comfrey talking about, R.I.P. Comfrey, talking about the Curse of the Roy's podcast (laughs) or whatever. And so there was kind of an implication of that, but I mostly took that as just, like, that mention is just, like, you know, to remind us that it's on Ken's mind sure, yeah. and, and like I, his I'm, need to confess. I'm definitely not banking on it coming back. I'm not sure it will come back, but it was so important to his entire series arc that I think maybe it could come back in an unexpected way, especially um, when you think about who knows and who doesn't know. I mean, who knows? Logan, Colin, Marsha, whoever else was involved in the cleanup, uh, Shiv and Rome. But I also think it's, it's odd Connor hasn't been told um again I don't know if it will come up but um I think that with that storyline concluding with the cruises stuff kind of uh, fading into the background and now we're just you know doing business deals and we're doing uh you know family dynamics we 
haven't really seen, uh, you know, there, there's no indication yet. I mean, perhaps it will come up with ATN and the election, and that's why they've been table setting that for so long about um, you know, the Roy's inflicting harm on the world because um right that that sense you know, of that sense of insularity that we were talking about right the sense that you know like in the first season that's the thing that can that's the thing that erupts out into the real world is this actual death that they're responsible for and in the second season it's this and this is what i was talking to to adam Naiman about this week uh we were talking about that idea that like you know like in the second season it's uh, that larger metaphor, or it's not, it's not a metaphor in plot terms, but the idea of the death pit, right? And the idea that, like, there are, like, deaths and, like, all this, like, sexual assault and all this actual harm that's occurring on these cruises. And so there's, like, it's like, it's many more than just one body that's on this company's hands. But in a way, it's still kind of submerged, like, literally submerged and, all, and abstracted because it's a question of, like, you know, what did the kids know and when did they know? And it's not something that they were any in any way directly responsible for. And then in season three, which as we've already talked about, is kind of the COVID season, this stuff starts to get a little bit even further kind of submerged. And so there is a sense in which that thread... Is well, like, with the exception of Mass and Time of War, that was really the... Well, they, the... they do air all that stuff. But again, it's like... It, the, it's, it's, it's also an extremely insular, practically a bottle episode, right? Sure. You know, like the, the sense of like like really disastrous things happening just outside their purview that they're, you know, that they bear some accountability for that gets a little bit alighted, but they start to bring it back with the Mencken stuff, which doesn't quite pay mm -hmm. off in that season. But that's what I think we were talking about. It's like the show is just kind of, it seems to demand something like that to, to come back somehow it has and to. it has and Jesse to Armstrong yeah and it has to be something that implicates more than just Ken at this point right because it, it happened with Ken in the first season because it was his show at that time because he was the main character like they were still kind of figuring right. Roman out during the course of the first season and like they're still bringing Shiv back into the fold but it was really the Ken show in the first season and it's really not anymore he really is not the main character of the show it really does feel more like an equal ensemble and at times he's kind of taking a back seat to shiv and roman in this early stage so there really needs to be something happening that those other kids like have to have some kind of direct reckoning with right and that's where i think the election stuff and again i keep talking about this and <laughs> to the point where now i'm questioning like maybe the show isn't going in this direction because i feel so certain that it is but i feel very strongly that all this all the track they're laying with the election with menken you know and especially with roman being like tied back to atn all the threads about you know roman really belongs at atn and his sort of like instinct for like showmanship and the fact that he's kind of like a failed Hollywood guy like so many conservatives are like so many reactionaries are um, and that he wants to be involved in ATN in some way to exercise that impulse you know is that going to lead to his having some direct accountability for whatever happens with you know Jared Menken with all this family trauma eventually manifesting itself and like you know catalyzing into this this figure of you know this neo-reactionary republican party that actually inflicts actual horror on the world yeah like i i think that is probably naturally where the show is going i imagine more so than the accident coming back like the thing about the accident and the cruises and all this is they're kind of framed in this way where it's like they're of plot or psychological interest for the time being but we sort of presume that this family has all manner of bodies buried all over the world and that for yeah. them these are kind of blips on the radar yeah. that there's a whole apparatus for managing a, a drowned waiter you know but this idea that you know they can they can 
essentially cr- pick in a hotel room this monstrous political figure and force him onto the world as this sort of far right uh, conservative id. That I think is where this is going. And I mean, I guess the comparisons between Fox News and Trump are so obvious as to be boring, but at the same time, also not because the one difference between the Trump family and the Roy's is at least personally, I find it impossible to imagine that Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump think or feel or do anything. Like the idea that Donald Trump Jr. can drive a car feels insane to me, you know? (laughs) So trying to do this where it's like you have people with fully realized psychologies and, uh, you know, very mangled and and twisted emotional lives, but emotional lives nonetheless, uh, playing that drama out on the global stage, you know, is the... A kind of thing that's more interesting, at least psychologically, than what happened in the real world. Well, yeah, and like ditto, like James and Lachlan Murdoch, right? These are not people who occupy tons of like, I don't know, sort of like popular airwaves, right? Like we don't spend a lot of time thinking about these people the same way that we're forced to think about what the Trump kids are up to, you know, from time to time. Yeah. But like, you know, yeah, it is very difficult. I mean, that's the genius of the show, right? And that's why people have such problems continually with talking about, you know, the ideas of like sympathy or like viewer identification for these characters, because what the show is very good at is showing you people with recognizable and sympathetic psychologies and also showing how they are absolutely pinned by their circumstances and their upbringing to act within these very prescribed ways that make like sort of like growth or development or redemption, you know, functionally impossible. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the other thing that makes it fiction and a, a good work of fiction is that it does have all these things that real life doesn't have. I mean, the Trumps or the Murdoch kids, they're not Shakespearean. They're no. they're true to our real world in the in the way that they seem totally flat and affectless and you know dead between the ears, uh, which may say something interesting about you know the, the capital T times that we capital W we capital L live in, uh, but it doesn't exactly make great TV. You know, or I guess it does, but it's something closer to like righteous gemstones. The one thing I'm interested in about the Mencken storyline, I mean, like again, if the this season goes the direction we think it is, maybe we'll have opportunity to talk about this but like marie touched on this in our premiere episode the sort of like you know neo-fascism that Mencken seems to represent where he's like economically populist and like socially you know quite restrictive and reactionary i don't know that that actually has a ton of purchase among like the modern republican party or an electorate for that matter like it's something that like seems everybody uh, everybody's always saying like oh it would be this would be really terrifying if the republicans ever figured this out like a way to do like welfare and also to be homophobic at the same time and be anti-immigrant but i don't know that that's actually something that seems like a plausible course because well i don't don't there doesn't seem to be an appetite for that you know like in real life right yeah Well, we saw in the midterms, like how little these culture war things that people online and in the media wring their hands about, they don't register for most voters. Nobody cares that your child had to use a litter box in a classroom or whatever these like bizarre canards that the, you know, far right tries to float are. It doesn't, nobody cares about it, right? Uh, But, you know, again, it's the kind of thing that seems scary. I mean... Obviously, there are real issues that we're dealing with now, but it's like the idea that there are gay people has been so thoroughly incorporated into the fabric of American life. Do I have to say which is good? 
which is good, uh, that like it's hard to imagine anyone in a meaningful populist way being able to backpedal from that. I'm hazy on Macon's politics, right? We only really got one episode where we got to hear what his thoughts are. I'm not so convinced that he's a economic populist or on the left economically. I, I think maybe um, that might just, you know, Shiv said the thing about like um, Medicare for all, abortions for none, which kind of bothered me because a guy like that would not be for Medicare for all. That's just, right, that's, right. that's not real. Um, so, I mean, she could have just been saying that because she's a Roy and, you know, she's an establishment fi- figure, whether she's, you know, de- how liberal she is, is, is up for, up for debate. But, um, there is this strain of, of this kind of, uh, I think they mentioned 4chan in this episode, right? This, this, uh, alt-right movement. Um, and I don't think there's any you know, heavy strain of, of, of economic populism in it. Um, yeah. So maybe that's just a mischaracterization of where Mencken's actually at. Yeah. I just think that if his actual platform is kind of what's been briefly outlined in those like very like, like tagline ways that Shiv describes it, I just have a hard time seeing a guy like that actually catching on with like the national party and the basis of maybe, maybe I'm showing my own naivete here, but I, I just, you know, I, I just don't think that's ever really been proven to ha- be something that could yeah, actually it's, catch on. It's weird. It, it would be different. It would be. I think that's part of the gambit though. And part of the mania is like, if yeah. he could, it would be a credit to ATN and their ability yeah. to exactly. essentially, you know, yeah. if he was not a dark horse candidate, it would not be, uh, interesting or relevant for them to do it I read something as usual very typical for us we uh, allied talking about any of the actual funny stuff on the show uh so <laughs> so the 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 carrie subplot with uh, her efforts oh, to become an atn anchor i heard some some complaints from people that were like you know is it plausible that somebody who is like as competent seeming and ruthless as carrie would have this delusion that she would be good on tv um I, I think it's very plausible. <laughs> I think it's very plausible yeah. that someone like this who's very convinced of their own competence would say, oh, yeah, I can fix ATN. How hard could it be? And then finds out she has no idea what to do with her arms in front of a camera. Um, that rang very true to me. <laughs> yeah, she has a sort of delusional self-confidence. I, I thought she would have done a little bit better on her like audition tape or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's obviously being in the room and sitting there is very, very different than, um, you know, taking down Greg or whatever. Um but I, I'm enjoying the Carrie stuff. I didn't really think like, uh, you know, the, oh, did she, her, her dreams of being an anchor thing was like particularly compelling. But I really like Zoe Winters and I think she's been great. And I like that they're using her more and um, the takedown she has of Greg <laughs> in that room. Um absolutely did it for me uh, when she I says uh, you've already it. grabbed every other woman in manhattan that's a that's a good line yeah and he's <laughs> like you know you know he's being typical greg and you know he's 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 hedging and he's being like well you know yeah but but, but they liked you and and this and that and and she's just like being very firm with him and she's like is it logan is it tom and then he says the thing about the arms <laughs> yeah, they weren't tv <laughs> she's like the arms what the fuck are you talking well, about? Well, yeah, because I think, like, um, he's referencing, like, again, like, if, on the tape, like, she doesn't know what to do with her arms. She yeah. keeps moving them around, and she does, like, a weird, like, kind of, like, waddle with them. But I thought, like, the way he said that, I thought he was implied that, like, her arms were, like, fat or something. <laughs> like, they were too fleshy. Well, that's what I first thought, that maybe 
that they were probably that I was like, no way, like he wouldn't say that. But then I just thought he was just making shit up, like Greg style, just like the arms, you know, like he just he just says that um, because sometimes he just he literally just just makes shit up. Um, him and Tom are, are sort of similar in that way. It was funny how Tom pawned that off to him that job. Um, I mean, the obvious comparison to me, uh, especially with the McKay, well, I guess not Will Ferrell connection anymore, is like the Anchorman scene where, uh, you know, Ron Burgundy is just reading a teleprompter with entirely the wrong cadence, you know? Because like, <laughs> I mean, she's, she's talking about something right. tragic, right? Like a child being murdered in a school or something like that right. yeah. with, with, the, with this kind of like chipper demeanor. Uh, and it's just so obviously bad. And it also, you know, makes you think about Logan's inner circle where, you know, whatever her core competencies, these certainly aren't them, but we also get a feeling that she might get the job. And it feels like that about a lot of other people close to him. So, you know, as as ruthless as he is, he'll still put people who aren't suited to the work in these kind of positions of esteem. Yeah, and that was a, a, fu- a funny line at the end when uh, they the kids sort of infer that, that he that, you know took the job away from her. And then <laughs> Kendall's like, Shiv's like, oh, has he fucked you? And Kendall's like, the fucking, that will happen. <laughs> right. Congrats on losing your betrayal, betrayal cherry. Is that what he says? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and again, um, uh, talking about stuff this episode that may come back, I, sh- I, I kind of have a suspicion that Carrie's like sort of like very depressed out demeanor at the end of this episode, where she's very deflated by all that. I suspect that that's going to be important going forward, that may- her maybe lessening allegiance to Logan. Yeah, and it's like, what what does she want out of Logan ultimately? Like, unless he's like Tom and he's some, you know, wizard in bed or something like that. But obviously the whole relationship is predicated on her using him to advance her career or get some position of power. Uh, and I don't know. It's funny to see that this is what she wants is to be Tommy Laren or one of these idiots. I kind of read it as I wondered if it might be something where it sh- Maybe this wasn't her original ambition, but she spends a lot of time with Logan, who's increasingly preoccupied with ATN, and they're talking about ATN, and she's and she's like, "Oh yeah, they're so terrible over there. Oh, how hard could it be? I bet I could do it." And it just spins into something where she's convinced herself that she'd be better at it than the people that are currently. Yeah, or, or, or he threw he threw out the idea. I mean, he is you know he's not like in the best state of mind, he's losing his faculties a little bit. I know, um, you know, this is a. Uh, something that logan has a history with you know with his um you know with 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 his infatuations and whatnot and then he might you know sort of just enter these dream worlds with these women that he's uh you know he's sleeping with and stuff and we haven't really seen him in this mode um because he's been married to marcia for the whole series and she's gone now and now um you know he's doing the very typical thing that you would expect for someone like him and you know screwing the secretary that's 30 years younger whatever the other thing if this, way more than 30 sorry <laughs> the other thing if this subplot gets us that i really liked was uh the bit with hugo um where oh, God. again it's a very like sitcom office humor like we've, we've often talked about how the show like is a comedy and a drama existing at the same time and sometimes there are p- characters in the same scene who are sitcom characters interacting with characters who are characters in a drama and like hugo in this scene is just a sitcom character who's doing an oopsie on his work computer because he doesn't know how to right. minimize the video before he plugs in the PowerPoint that he has to show Logan. Uh, so he can, so Boomer they can mode, all yeah. see that they've just, that she, that he and Jerry have just been mocking uh, Carrie's audition tape. 
and you get that nice little pointed exchange between him and Carolina and her glowering at him. Uh, because I really like, uh, you know, if you recall when Hugo was first introduced in season two's Argestes, he was talking all this stuff about like, oh, I don't know where Carolina got that. I have no idea where that came from. He was very explicitly throwing her under Such the bus, slime ball, even yeah. though she's his <laughs> superior. And he's doing that all the time. He's constantly jockeying. He was sucking up to Shiv in season three when she had the president position. So I always like those reminders that Carolina and Hugo really hate each other. And there's a little sense of that And also Hugo is such there. a good such a good like embodiment of somebody who would be VP of communications for fucking cruises at Waystar. Like he's just so, you know, smarmy and gross. And I loved the way Carolina looked at him at the end of the <laughs> scene when Logan tells him to put on the lipstick because some independent director needs to be blown. Um, yeah. I'm Dagmar Dominchek, which is always so good. Hopefully we get a little bit more of her, but um, it was very funny. And also, uh, another good Carolina Hugo moment was last season when um, Carolina makes Hugo do the Marsha divorce conversation early season three when Marsha comes to see Logan starts you know outlining her terms yeah it's, it's funny that you say that Hugo is what you would expect the VP of communications to look like and not Carolina because Carolina is the you know the gorgeous queen who's promoted to be the face of the sort of like public relations operation whereas you know Hugo Fisher balding Hugo, Fisher Stevens is get... the subordinate who does a lot of the of the, yeah. of the dirty work did he get promoted though or something it doesn't feel like he would be around this much um i don't know it doesn't matter but uh, i think he just assumed a pos- viewers love fisher stevens we need more fisher the the, yeah, the meme mean- lords were going nuts for hugo they love their <laughs> tons of hugo i don't i don't think i've ever seen a hugo fan cam no i always just assumed that. that he assumed a more prominent and more active role because he was vp because of, of yeah. because of cruises and because cruises was in so much turmoil so right yeah I also, it's such a relatable faux pas in a different way, like but, but plugging the computer in and it coming, like it reminds me of if you go to work in a cafe and you open your laptop lid and there's some embarrassing video playing at full volume and you're like fucking frantically trying to just oh, like yeah. control the situation and that instant of pure terror. Yeah, and then and, uh, and Jerry, Jerry, we haven't talked about Jerry, but uh, Jerry has just kind of like rolled herself into a ball and is just kind of, you know, waiting for Logan's wrath to subside as he's still, you know, freezing her out. Uh, in the aftermath of the Roman dick pic disaster. Um, you know, uh, yeah, we're not sure he, what's what's going to happen with her this season. They made it seem like that would just sort of go away. I didn't think it would because I think Logan is very, very disturbed and perturbed by that whole thing. More on the, on the Does, side of Didn't we learn with like the Greg, let me smell your fingers thing or whatever, though, that he kind of has a bit of a body horny, like, I don't know if it it would be like bridge burning. He does, but I think it's more about the fact that it's Roman and Jerry, and he he already has these qualms about Roman and doesn't understand why Roman can't have a normal relationship or be normal about sex. Um, He... He says, when he finds out about the dick pic, he says the thing about she's a million years old. It's disgusting. Like, as if if it was a younger woman, you know, in the business, he wouldn't have minded as much. Um, I think it's the gender dynamics, the fact that, you know, Jerry's been like a trusted advisor for so long. Um, and then, you know, it's his son who has these these sexual issues. And I think, he you know, he wants to kind of brush it aside and... and um, not think about it, but I actually I do think it, it, it disturbs him quite a bit. 
Well, and there's also the, again, as always, the themes of sort of quasi-incest on this show. There's the implication that at some point there was an affair between Logan and Jerry, maybe far in the past. Um, But that's been been referenced on the show. Or not, because she's been around so long. Like, the other women that he tends to have business and romantic entanglements with uh, don't end up kind of in the inner circle. But I think you're right. There was some previous comment that, like, Jerry was Jerry was sexy when she joined or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, he's just he's just a big old sexist and he thinks it's gross that Roman is doing that with Jerry because she's old. Um and you know, I think Well, he'll be dead and we won't mourn him because <laughs> I think it's cool with the reptile. Well, I mean the, the Yeah, she's she's fucking hot. I mean the, like, the, the, <laughs> the the sexism is way more germane for why Logan is still angry at Jerry because actually what this is is the affair with Roman is a pretext for him to exercise his dislike of her that had already been building when she was being too competent at the substitute CEO role. Mm. As we talked yeah. about last week, he can't abide a woman like actually doing something for him, you know, actually helping him out. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see if Roman gets back into the fold with Dad, how that happens with Jerry, how Logan navigates it. Um, you can see him probably wanting to like keep them apart. I don't know. Lots that could transpire there. Um, stray thoughts, annotations. We didn't get to Tom in the. Oh, episode. I wanted to say, to to talk about the funny lines, you know, the the terrifyingly moseying stuff was kind of like teased out in the trailer. But I did like when Greg describes it as being like Jaws, if everyone in Jaws worked for Jaws, uh, which I thought was kind of a funny. Oh, that line. whole that whole scene was pretty funny, and just like the way that he was literally kind of terrifyingly moseying with his <laughs> yeah. glasses <laughs> Yeah, I, I I thought about too as someone who's like worked in media a bit, where it's like you always have kind of a nightmare that there's a detached boss that you know sends an email every six weeks regarding like when and how your company is going to be sold to a different Greek or Saudi Arabian entity. But then the thing more terrifying than that is the over-involved boss who's like looking over your shoulder and talking to you. Like that's almost worse than the the <laughs> constant was. sort of. Low, slow burn sort of Damocles dangle uh, vibe. Yeah, certainly seems that way. And yeah, we didn't talk about Tom this episode because there wasn't too much to talk about there, except that uh, he gave a very uninspiring introduction uh, to Logan. Oh, God, consistently. Con- <laughs> but we should all be so lucky to have someone set us up like that. Like, imagine if you had to give a talk and you had a limp noodle like that going on before you, anyone would kill. Yeah. <laughs> And um, it does seem like you were right, Brendan, and and Logan is going to can Sid, right? Yeah, I mean, how crazy is that? They just keep Jeannie Berlin around for three seasons (laughs) waiting to do something with her, and then it's like, oh, well, goodbye. But, I mean, I guess it must have been great for the succession casting crew. You just have Jeannie Berlin hanging out on set, hanging hanging out in commissary all the time. How fun is that? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, any stray citations from you, Gabby? Anything we forgot to mention? Any fun stuff from the dialogue? Um, <laughs> again, just sorry, going back to that Logan moseying scene when Greg is re- relaying to Tom what Logan's complaints are, and he says he, he hates the new font, it's too small and it's too ingratiating. Um, <laughs> just like very, very funny. I wonder if Logan used the word ingratiating or Greg did. 
Um, but just, yeah, I mean, the, the way that he hovers, the way that he is so consumed by his newsroom and its effectiveness and how it operates and, and he keeps such a, you know, terrifying eye over it. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very funny to me that he would like care about something like the font and call it ingratiating. Yeah. You know, somebody has got a sub stack where they're like, I'm a font expert and I analyze the fonts on ATN to figure out what Logan was complaining about. <laughs> Link link us that article if you if you if you've read it or if you've written it. Also, shout out to the Insomniacs. We got a good line from Skarsgård. I've never met anyone I respect who sleeps good. Um, you know, even if it's out of the mouth of a weirdo. Right on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and also Shiv says um, something here that is a throwback. Uh, when you say the thing that isn't, you know, it's a lie. I think she had that line in the pub, which was a good throwback. Also, somebody, one of you brought up the uh, act like water line, which was uh, also a throwback from the pilot, Connor, saying, read the trust, uh, I'm like water, I flow. So again, just more indexy um, succession repeat phrases and turns of phrase and all that. Um, Also really thought it was funny, Stewie doing the, taxi cab accent saying good price good price it's just like a very new york thing and uh, uh i loved it uh let, let stewie be funny again <laughs> yeah great little bit of stewie in this episode uh it looks like we're yeah. gonna get a little bit more stewie this season which uh, which will be fun yeah john uh i want to thank you mm-hmm. so much for joining us this was a fun talk um want to give you space uh, anything you got coming up you want to plug for our listeners uh, you can follow me on Twitter, I guess, uh, John Semley 3000 I have a couple articles coming out in The Baffler, another one in Wired about Matt Johnson's new movie, Blackberry, which I watched recently, which was really cool. In fact, I thought that the kind of – I don't know if anyone's familiar with Matt Johnson, yeah, the Canadian yeah. filmmaker. Uh, uh, but I thought that some of the, the rack-focused stuff that's been happening on Succession uh, – I had just watched Blackberry, and I was like, oh, they're doing the Jared Rabb uh, cinematography. Uh, anyways, uh, shout out to the six people who pick up any of those references. Uh, and I'm actually in the process of uh, finishing the first couple episodes of a podcast that I'm going to be producing and hosting with my friend, the writer Asher Dark, and it's called Slow Learners. And it's a podcast where each season we go through a big, difficult book and talk about it with guests. And for our first season, we bit off way more than we could chew and are covering Gravity's Rainbow in 15 episodes. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we should have started something a little less ambitious with that, but we had both just read it, so we felt that it would be fresh. Uh, so it's, you know, ostensibly a cool show where we, we go through the book in chapter-by-chapter chapter chunks. We kind of uh, riff with each other about it, and then, you know, we bring in experts on everything from – rocket science to the Herrero genocide to, you know, filmmakers who have made attempts at adapting Pynchon. Uh, so, yeah, it's a sort great. of... That's a really Yeah, it's idea. kind of like a mongrelized uh, read-along, gad-about literary show. And, you know, hopefully we can just get it done and then season two we can do something easy like, I don't know, Ulysses or something. That sounds awesome. I mean, so, yeah, follow me on Twitter post about all that I mean, stuff you wrote a whole companion guide to gravity's rainbow right yeah. that that's true yeah and i've been talking about this with my friend who i'm doing the podcast with where it's like uh just a, a, a period of 
just exorcising the book from my mind where it's like, okay, I wrote a 30,000 word reader's guide and I still can't stop thinking about it. So maybe after this podcast, I will exhaust my interest in the subject and in pure Philistine fashion can move on to caring about something else. Amazing. Well, since we brought in such highbrow references with Pinchon, I now have to ask you one final question, which is how are you coping with the, uh, the Scandaval? <laughs> My wife told me to tell you I have a hard out at nine o'clock, and I said I already I already set Vaynerpump rules to pre-record on the Roku. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, to talk about the sort of Damocles, I mean, Vaynerpump rules has this kind of weird sense right now where we're still watching these idiotic episodes play out, and we just want to see the reunion where all these people can confront each other. Oh, I know. Uh, but, you know, so, I, you know, I, I, I until the reunion, I think a lot of the scandal and drama has kind of exhausted itself. Um, and in fact, it has shown just how venomously cruel a lot of this fandom could be. Who would have guessed? Uh, yeah. But yes, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, it's the hip Bravo reality show Vanderpump Rules. I about can't, a group I can't of horny decide if, if those people are better or worse off for not knowing about it. Hey, for every seven chapters of Gravity's Rainbow you read, you're allowed to watch one hour of Vanderpump Rules, you know? It's just a massage for the brain, and it's it's brilliant. I mean, we could parallel it to Succession. We could do a whole a whole thing about it, but, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a key uh, text about fame and how to make it in America. Yeah. yeah, and you could not script a character as uh, evil as Jax Taylor, no. uh, not oh even Jesse God. Armstrong. Oh, no. could one do of, it. Oh <laughs> one of the greatest characters in the Western canon. <laughs> I mean, Definitely. they're all great, but Jax is uh, something different. Yeah. So, in short, I'll be going to watch that the instant that we get off this <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> okay, well, let's let John get to it. Uh, I want to say thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Gabby, thanks to John Semley, and to our producer, Dan Black. If you are enjoying the Roycast, the best way to show your support is to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice. The second best way to show your support is through the Square link in our bio. Roycast is a passion project, and we incur minor ongoing fees related to producing and hosting this independent show. The content will never be paywalled, and we thank those who have supported us so far. We'll be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession's final season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. Desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences For so long now Oh, you're a hard one But I know that you got your reasons